I'd like to give you a short course in uh, turntable setup. As you know, what does that mean? As you know, I, I love uh, collecting music and particularly vinyl records. And uh, to listen to a vinyl record on a properly set up turntable is very important, right? First, the turntable has to be level. Like, so you have to measure it and make sure it's perfect. You have a level and you make sure it's level. And then you have to mount the cartridge just so in the tone arm. It's gotta have a certain amount of overhang, right? That has to be measured so that as it goes across the record, there's less distortion. The amount of weight pushing forward has to be properly calibrated. The tone arm itself, because of the head shell, there's the azimuth adjustment. That has to be perfectly straight up and down. And then the level of the tone arm itself has to be calibrated because it's going to change the angle of the needle as it moves across the record, which is gonna give you a little bit more low end, a little bit more high end. Then the cartridge itself has to be loaded, you know, with the right amount of homage from the, write this down, the right amount of homage from your, uh, from your preamp, et cetera. Anyway, there's more adjustments. Then you gotta clean the record. Well, how do you clean the record? Well, you have a vacuum cleaner record machine that actually you put solution on and it sucks up the solution. Father, you do all that? Yes, I do. I told you I have a slight case of OCD, but maybe it's not so slight. But what's the payoff of doing all this? I mean, can't you just buy one of those other record players that just plays it? Well, you can, and that's okay. But when you play vinyl on this kind of apparatus, on this kind of turntable, and you hear it this way, there's a payoff that's more than just listening to music. I mean, it's truly, truly an experience. To experience music in that way, sometimes it can be a very emotional experience, but it's, it's no doubt, at least for me, it's incredibly engaging. Like I really am able to connect with the music because all of this stuff is set up properly. And once it's set up, it's set up. It's not like you have to do it every time, but it draws you in to, to the music that, that you love or that I love. But it all has to be set up properly for that to happen. I was uh, doing some research on the this is a big shift. I was doing some research on the American highway system. I was. How did that come to be? It's one of the, I believe it might be the, the largest public works program in history. And, and of course, the, the interstates, uh, certainly on the East Coast, were starting to be, to be put together. But it wasn't until 1956 that the bill was passed that really expanded um, especially through, obviously, federal funding, the interstate program throughout the entire United States, the goal of, of creating this web of interstates so that people could get, obviously, to where they wanted to go a lot faster. I remember as a kid, as there, there weren't any, upper, any uh, interstates in, in northern Wisconsin, and driving up from, I mean, it's already north, but we'd go up north, which is where my grandmother was, in northern, northern Wisconsin, and get to get up there, right? You're going through all these little towns. 
I'm sure you know what it's like to drive somewhere, especially a long distance, when there isn't an interstate, right? And you're, it's two-lane highways, and then you come into the town, and you gotta slow down, and you have to actually go through the town, right? And there's, I mean, a lot of these towns in Wisconsin have at least one stoplight. So sometimes you even have to stop. Um, and it takes forever to get to wind through all these towns. Well, of course, the interstate program is built, it took a long time, actually. I believe I-10 wasn't completed until 1990, even here in, in Phoenix. Uh, the last connection was downtown where the tunnel is. And um, once the interstate program really was completed, but as it was being completed, obviously people were able to get where they wanted to go much, much faster. Much faster. I was thinking uh, even that trip up to uh, Flagstaff, I hate that drive. I just hate it. You know, I used to be, I used to be up there, I was up there for two years, these beautiful people that I was ministering to in Williams, Ash Fork, and Seligman. But going through Flagstaff, I just can't stand that drive. Both ways, you know, just couldn't. But there's not really a good way to go around that. And even that drive, even though it's an interstate, we know it's one of the most dangerous interstates in the United States, but it's still, you know, uphill, and it's slow, and you get that, that one guy who goes in the left-hand lane who can only go 35 miles an hour, but he's going faster than in the truck, so he thinks he can, and everybody's backed up, and it's driving you crazy. Um, so you're going uphill, and then you're going downhill, and then you're going uphill, and then you're going downhill, and then you're going uphill. I mean, just imagine trying to make that drive what that would have been like prior to an interstate. But even that interstate, if that could be made straight, you know, that trip to Flagstaff, just sort of a gradual straight, we'll just make tunnels and bridges and, and we'll just go right through. It reminds me of, I was on a train one time in Western Austria and we were going through the Alps up to Bregenz just cause and going through the Alps, there were all these tunnels. Like they, I mean, the Alps are big, you know, they're tall. You're not really gonna go up. So they just went under. So there were all of these tunnels. And it was really amazing because um, you'd go through like a mile long tunnel and then you'd come out and there'd be this, this huge, you know, I don't know, expanse going just almost straight up, and there'd be a little town right there, and then you go into another tunnel. And it's like these little towns were just sort of in between all of these peaks, but the train would just cut straight through to get through the destination. Well, that's enough analogies. So we are bid today by John the Baptist to make the way straight, to lower the mountains, to raise the valleys, to make the road straight for Christ to enter in. So sometimes we need to be recalibrated. Sometimes perhaps there's, there's a large sort of act that needs to be taken, like, you know, blowing a, a tunnel through a mountain. Sometimes it's big things, sometimes it's little things, sometimes it's little adjustments, 
Sometimes it's life-changing decisions. But the goal through it all, through all of it that we're trying to do in our lives, needs to be how can Jesus enter more freely into my heart and how can I keep him there? And so each one of us during Lent then were to look at our lives. Are there big changes that need to be made? Maybe. Maybe there are. But maybe there are little changes that need to be made. It reminds me of people coming to confession and they say, well, Father, I don't really have any sins. I'm like, really? Let me ask you a few questions. You know, because oftentimes we think of the big stuff, you know, and, and there's certainly really, really big, heavy sins, and, but we don't always think about the fine-tuning. And the fine-tuning, if we don't have the big stuff, that's great. Time for the fine-tuning. We're not done yet. Father, when am I going to be done? When you're on the other side of the grass. Until then, we're not done. And so during Advent, and then of course during Lent as well, we particularly are asked to examine our lives. What needs to be gone? And maybe what needs to be just tweaked a little bit? The goal, as always, is for Jesus to be able to enter in more freely and more readily. And what do we get from that? We get divine life within us, surging through us, continuing to renew us and mold us into being a, a much more uh, perfect, exact image of Jesus himself. Please stand.